to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 again. Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Whoa. Papers flying everywhere here this morning. <clears throat> Someone's phone is ringing. (laughs) Let me... um, Let me start this way this morning. You know, our world places an incredible premium on tolerance. Our society is all about toleration and that kind of thing. And, it, and it's out of the, the political correctness uh, mindset uh, so much so that in today's society, it seems as if uh, the only real sin in many places is the sin of either being critical or being negative. And, you know, sometimes as you watch the political... Um, I don't know what to call it. I, I want to call it dialogue, but it's really not, is it? As you watch the, 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 the constant flood of those kinds of things, it grows wearisome and burdensome, and it grows caustic and ugly, negative and critical. And that attitude of negativity, that attitude of of critical uh, nature about things, being always uh, uh, looking at the bad, carries over into the church. In fact, it may have started in the church where people began to call for the church to to not be negative, to to don't preach on sin, just affirm us, just just encourage us, just just tell me how good I am, be positive. And you know, we have a um, a pastor who uh, years ago uh, that was his message, Robert Schuler, you know, and and he was all about the positive side of things and thinking, you know, po- the power of positive thinking and all that kind of thing. Don't deal with error. Don't expose others who teach error. Just be, be nice. Because of that cult of toleration, lots of Protestants today find themselves uncomfortable with the language that some of the men like Luther and Calvin and Knox would have used, just to name a few uh, from history. Those men were not sparing in their denunciation of that which was not true. They came down with a, with a, a heavy hand on those things. They dealt with those who opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ with strong words. And I hope you know that the writers of Scripture give us ample warrant for doing that. In fact, as you look at Paul's letter to the Galatian church, over and over again, Paul makes statements that our world kind of reacts negatively to, that, that our world finds almost offensive. It, it, it is only with great difficulty that, that we can convince people today that what we believe actually matters. You know, when, when Paul deals with the Galatian 
issues, the church and the, the churches in the region of Galatia that were struggling with, with what the reality of the gospel was, what is the true gospel, um, he shows them the danger of, of defecting from the true gospel and exchanging it for a counterfeit message, for a counterfeit gospel. And there's a difference, by the way, and I, I want to be sure that I, I say this correctly. There's a difference between being harsh and, and firm with being mean and mean-spirited and ugly. And I think that Paul uses harsh, firm, clear denunciations. But I don't think you can find that Paul is nasty in any way, okay? But our society needs to learn what that balance is all about. It's universally acknowledged, I think, in our world that it's important that we believe in something. But it's not so important as to what that content is. What we believe is largely assumed to be a secondary matter. As long as you believe in something, you're okay. That's not what the Apostle Paul would say. That's not at all what the Apostle Paul would teach us, and that is not at all what we will hear this morning uh, from Paul's words. You know, just for illustration, just for an example this morning, if I were to describe someone to you, and, and, and somebody that I see every week, and, and I've got someone in mind that I actually see about once a week. And he comes in, and, and, and I, I, I love him, and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to engage him. And I think highly of him in many ways. I see him as a moral man. He is a religious man. He is a, he's, he's a good father and a husband. And from the things that I hear, he loves his children he has provided sacrificially for his family. He's a good employer. He works hard at his business. He does what he can do to help the poor. He actually uh, seems to be generous as he gives to uh, some of his charities that he likes. But if I were to describe him to you and then tell you that he had rejected the doctrine of the Trinity... And that because he has rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, he is headed for hell and will surely end up there if he doesn't change his views. There are probably some who would recoil at that idea. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a religious and a moral guy. He's a good dad. He's a good husband. We assume that what we believe is virtually irrelevant as long as we do believe in something. Don't get me started about the coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> that is like, that is like rave, waving a red flag in front of a bull every time I see that. You know, that, that bumper sticker makes my blood pressure go up. I, you know, I just hope when I go to the doctor to have my blood uh, pressure checked and all that next time that I don't see one of those. Um, but we, that's kind of the way we live in our world today. As long as you believe in something, it's okay. Just believe in something. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Just be sincere. It is inconceivable to us that somebody who's devout, who's sincere, who's kind, who's loving could be lost. 
But it's a truth. It's a reality. The diminishing of the importance of the content of what we believe can't be reconciled with the Bible. God is concerned about what you believe. He's concerned that you know whom you have believed. He's concerned about your theology. I, I don't fear uh, for a moment. I, I don't, I don't ha- any, for any moment uh, d- deny that practice is not important. And practice ought to reflect what we believe. But we need to believe in the truth of the gospel. Our personal theology must be fundamentally correct in the core beliefs, or we're believing in vain. Deny an essential of Christianity, of the Christian faith, and there is not hope for salvation. I just want to be clear this morning. That sounds tough, doesn't it? But that's exactly what Paul says in our text. This morning, Paul minces no words. And so this, this morning, let's give careful attention to Galatians chapter 1, I'm just going to read verses 6 to 10. You could append verse 11, and I had initially thought I would do that, but we can put verse 11 with the uh, next paragraph. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's, uh, he moves on to another subject there in verse 11. So let's just read 6 to 10 this morning. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thus ends the reading of the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. May the Holy Spirit apply his word to our hearts today. Let me lead us in prayer one more time. Father, I ask you, that you would open us, our hearts, our eyes, to understand and to receive the truth that is contained here in the Scriptures. Lord, help us to be faithful to the Word. Help us to apply these truths to our lives day after day. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. So I, I think I told you last week I went through uh, the book of Galatians on one of my read-throughs and, and I marked all the places where Paul says something like he's astonished or he's amazed at uh, what was happening with the Galatians. Uh, I marked this text, obviously. Uh, I marked uh, uh, the word accursed there uh, as he uses it a couple of times. I marked a bunch of other places where Paul responds to the churches in Galatia with kind of a, with kind of a, a strong sense of urgency, with a sense of, of importance about uh, the, the truth of the gospel and those kind of ideas. Paul opens these verses basically on the heels of his greeting. He, it's like he launches into his topic. He, 
frequently in his greetings, um, when you get to about this point, as after you've been reading the greetings, uh, he uh, talks about how he is praying for them or, or some, some particular prayer need or something like that. He talks about how he cares for them. Not in this one. He jumps right in and he goes, I am amazed. I am flabbergasted. I am, I I find it unbelievable that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul had taught them the grace of Christ. They had known and they had received the truth of the fact that they are saved by grace through faith alone. That they didn't bring anything to the table. Paul has clearly taught them the truth of the gospel. He has been unashamedly declaring that to them. And the statement that they had turned quickly from Christ actually recalls some of the Old Testament language where, where, um, that was directed at Israel after they had made apostasy, uh, after they had, had, had turned away from the Lord. They were deserting them. Actually, the word that's used here in our text where Paul says that you are so quickly deserting him, it, it's, a, it's, it's a word, it, it, meta, uh, meta themai, meta, no, I'm sorry, meta tethemai. Um, it's a, it means deserting, it means to change over, it means to turn away, it means to fall away, um, it, it means to become apostate, it means, it means to desert. They were deserters. They were not just AWOL, they were deserters. Incredibly, they were turning away from God himself, and they were turning to what? A different gospel. So I scratched my head a little bit. I thought about this. Okay, what, what was that different gospel? Uh, they were repeating the things that Israel had done in the past. The different gospel was they were turning away from grace. They were neglecting grace. It wasn't just that they were adopting a new theology. Um, theology and Christian experience can't be separated. They were turning away from the gospel of grace, and by doing that, they were turning away from the God of grace. That gospel, Paul says in verse 7, is really not another one, only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The different gospel is not another in terms of uh, the word another, I think, is kind of awkward in English when you're looking at it uh, instead of in the Greek. It, it's not, it, Paul's, Paul's being emphatic here. He's saying it's a different gospel. It's not just a, a similar gospel. It's a different gospel. You've, you've changed where you have put your faith in Christ and where you're resting on his work, his finished, completed work for you, and you've begun to distort it and make it different because you've added something to it. You've, you've added something that doesn't belong. Paul's gospel was a gospel of Christ. It was a gospel of the atonement. It was a gospel uh, that de- declares the full remission of sin and, and, and justification of sinners and, and the atonement of Christ. And all of that based on what Christ has done for us. And the Galatians were saying, well, yeah, you need that. But you need something more. You've got to add something to that. You know, if, that's, if that's what you believe, that's good. That's a good place to start, you Gentiles. But you need to be a little more Jewish in your understanding of the gospel. 
And Paul is pretty emphatic about it. Paul didn't think it was the same with just a slight difference. Paul said, when you turn away from the gospel of free grace and add to the gospel, it is a different gospel. It is no longer the truth. Anything that adds human endeavor distorts the gospel of grace. And we think, huh, that's no big deal, right? I mean, we don't do that. We don't, we don't struggle with that, do we? That's, that's not an issue anymore. Gee, Richard, what are you all worked up about? When you add to the gospel, whether you're adding works, whether you're adding sacraments of baptism or anything else, you detract from the gospel. Let that sink in for a minute. The success of counterfeiting depends on the similarity of the forgery with the real thing. You couldn't go pay your power bill with Monopoly money as convenient as that might be. It would be wrong. I think there's supposed to be another slide here. Hello? Bump it ahead? <laughs> I've got... <laughs> I don't know where we are. There we are. <clears throat> It's one thing to try to pay your bills with Monopoly money. It's another thing to pay your bills with a fake $20 bill. You know, if you, pay your, 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 if you try to pay your bill with your Monopoly money, everybody's going to laugh you out of the store. They're going to go, yeah, we don't take that here. But when someone pays with a counterfeit bill, you have been defrauded and you are defrauding someone else. Now, if you look carefully at those bills, you can actually see the difference probably even uh, through the, the PowerPoint. Uh, you'll notice that the fake one, the, uh, the 20, is a little bit different color. You'll notice that uh, the images are not as clean or as clear or whatever, but don't spend too much time working on that. The gospel, if it is counterfeited, is defrauding. It is not clearly yours. The gospel is about Jesus and him crucified and his substitutionary atonement. The idea of a counterfeit is what Paul's talking about here when he talks about a different gospel, a fake one. The gospel taught by the Judaizers was counterfeit because it wasn't the real deal. And it was soul-damning and deadly. They were denying the graciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their teaching couldn't be called a gospel. They, the preachers were disturbing, Paul says. They were, they were confusing uh, the people in Galatia, calling their new teaching the gospel. But it was fundamentally dishonesty. Actually, if you look at the Greek verbs there, it's written in the present tense. I, maybe I shouldn't give you a Greek lesson this morning. But, but what's happening here, this is written in the present tense. So, so you get the impression of the urgency of the matter in Paul's mind. And the fact that the counterfeit gospel was actually currently being preached in the churches in Galatia at the very moment that Paul is penning this letter to them. Those counterfeits were being distributed in the churches. 
at the very time Paul is writing this to him. Um, I, I, I picked up this quote from somewhere. These errorists, not terrorists, but errorists, and I love that word, these errorists were still in Galatia when Paul was writing this letter that he wrote uh, with the intention of stopping them in the very midst of their activities. The Judaizers were, were trying to distort and pervert the gospel. What a terrible thing. So what was the thing they were teaching? What was their distortion? What was their perversion that they were teaching? You know, were they denying the resurrection of Christ? No, they didn't. They, they didn't deny his deity. They didn't deny um, that he was the Messiah or the Savior. No, that, those were not the issues. They were, weren't denying the, the fact that they needed to put their faith in Jesus. They didn't deny that. If you go to most churches today, you will hear those things, truths being declared. As we saw last time, what they did was they basically denied that mere faith is not enough. Faith is not enough. Trusting Christ is not enough. They added to faith uh, in Christ the meritorious works of the law. You merit something with God by keeping the law. You see, you Galatians have, have received Christ, and, and that's kind of a watered-down gospel. If you were really a full-fledged believer in Christ, then you would add these Jewish laws to your faith. Circumcision. You would, you would add the dietary laws to your faith, and you would be a better Christian. You'd be a more mature Christian. You would grow up and, 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 and you would respect the, the whole Old Testament and all that God has done through the Jewish people. You would add to your faith. So why is that important? Why is Paul worked up about that? Because Paul wants us and he wanted the Galatians to understand that there is only one gospel. There is only one thing for our salvation. It is faith. It is salvation by grace through faith alone. That is it. That has implications. That has implications in the way we believe. That has implications in the way we lead our children to faith in Christ. Do you realize that? Do you realize that if your child can profess a genuine faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, that they are probably saved? That has, that has huge implications. Any different gospel is not a gospel at all. The gospel is unchanging. It can't be revised. It can't be modernized. It can't be added to. It can't be improved. It cannot be altered. It can't be changed without being distorted. It's simple enough for a five-year-old to understand and simple enough for a 95-year-old to understand. But it's deep enough for you to spend the rest of your life delving the riches and the depths of the truth of the gospel. It is a beautiful, glorious thing. And it's all about Jesus Christ. 
it's, it's described as a treasure. It's described as a standard of sound words. Uh, it's, it's, it's been described as something that we are to entrust and guard. Um, Paul tells Timothy to do that. Um, it, is, it is called, the, it is called the, the teaching of the grace of Jesus Christ. The gospel is of Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he has done. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's a gospel of grace. It's the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints that we are to contend for earnestly. If only the church had learned that lesson. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big church history buff. And uh, I struggle with church history. And, and um, uh, I, when we took church history in seminary, um, I managed to uh, uh, do all of the reading and everything else. And when I finished with the reading, I, I tried to think back over what I had learned. And I just remember having read all of church history, you know, and thinking, okay, <laughs> you know, and moving on. But this week I was thinking about this text, and I was, I was wrestling with how the gospel, when it has been adulterated, when it has been modified, when it has been made palatable, when it's been made a little bit different, when it's been changed, how it has affected the world. And I thought there would have been no Book of Mormon had the gospel remained pure, had the church learned her lesson. There would have been no uh, revelations of Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventist. That wouldn't have happened. Mary Baker Eddy's, what was her book, The Key to Science and Scripture? That wouldn't have happened. No extra-biblical traditions. Nothing to add to the practice and the doctrines of the church. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it impacts us. The gospel is not to be added or subtracted from. It's our responsibility to faithfully, clearly preach it to you. David and I carry a huge burden when we stand here before you. And that is to be faithful to the word. Your elders are charged with the responsibility of holding us and holding all of us as a body accountable for the truth of the gospel so that we can pass the truth on to the next generation and the next. So that those who are outside of Christ can hear the truth of the gospel. It doesn't sound very glamorous when you think about it in some ways. We all tend to have a, a pretty high view of our creativity and, and we want to revise and reinvent things and reinterpret things for our generation. We want to make things palatable, right? I think that's what's happened in a lot of the churches today. We've tried to, 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 to lower the gospel to its lowest common denominator so it's attainable for anybody. And what have we gotten? We've gotten a church that is about that deep and maybe a mile wide, and maybe not a true church at all. We've compromised the truth of the gospel. Often we, we do that for the best of reasons, though, don't we? You know, indeed, as I was thinking about it, the case can be made that virtually every and, and I mean it when I say the word every, virtually every heresy introduced to the Christian church 
from her earliest days of history forward have been out of the high motive of evangelism. Because the church wanted to take the gospel to the lost, the church compromised the gospel. The Arians. The Arians wanted to simplify the gospel, and so they denied the deity of Christ. The Pelagians, on the other hand, wanted to purify the practice of the gospel, so they denied the sovereignty of God and let everything rest on the will of man. Slyermacher, the father of modern theological liberalism, maybe you've never heard of him, he wanted to commend the gospel to the intelligentsia of his day, to the cultured despisers of his day. So he took the historical, theological, supernatural elements out of the gospel and tried to make this, this pablum that was acceptable to the world of his day. The early Unitarians wanted to liberate the gospel from its Greek rationalism and, and denied the doctrine of the Trinity. The gospel's not part of Greek rationalism to begin with. The Judaizers were doing the exact same thing. They were compromising the gospel. They wanted to make the gospel more palatable for the Jewish audience. They didn't want the Jewish audience to have to, have to give up their law-keeping and to look, instead of to keeping the law, to grace. They wanted to let them have both. You see what was happening in the church? There's nothing new under the sun. They just, they put the ceremonial aspects of the law back in to appease and to appeal to their Jewish brothers. Modern ears don't respond well to the sound of judgment, to, to the side of the gospel that talks about sin, that talks about atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ or, or the cross. And, and so those doctrines get neglected and denied. You know, there was one point where our uh, PowerPoint uh, I should, probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. Where our PowerPoint, we were frequently using a PowerPoint slides that uh, showed the cross and showed blood and, and were, you know, pointing toward the atonement and the shed blood of Christ. And someone uh, said to us and complained to us, oh, that's just too much. That's too much blood, too much, too, too much of it. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think we need to revel in the cross because it is by the shed blood of Jesus that we have been forgiven. That God became flesh and dwelt among us and lived without sin and lived a perfect life and died the death of a sinner and became a curse for us, an abomination for us in the sight of God, under the ban for us, if you will, that we might be redeemed. How can we deny his shed blood on the cross? Christ is the Holy One. Christ is the judge. But you know, when the cross gets neglected or reinterpreted, when it finds its, its meaning in self-fulfillment or in peace or in prosperity, the Savior from sin becomes the key to success. 
When, when the gospel gets adulterated, when it gets twisted, when it gets turned, Christ the Holy One becomes Christ the Friendly One. When the gospel gets twisted, Christ the Judge, who commands that all men everywhere repent, becomes Christ the Therapist. We need to be careful that we not let the doctrines of the grace of Jesus Christ be compromised in any way. That is inevitably how the gospel is being preached today in way too many churches. The gospel of grace is what we need. How often has the church been disturbed and divided because it violated that principle? John Stott, just another quote, he says this, to tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. It can't be changed. I gave you on the uh, reflection page in your bulletin this morning uh, an insert from, uh, excerpt, sorry, from um, uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And in that, uh, as he's commenting on verse 6 of our text here, he actually has the same struggle, apparently, going on in the church in Wittenberg. How about that? Read that later. Think about that later on today. The gospel, ironically, doesn't need to be changed, does it? The gospel, the gospel stands on its own two feet. It stands on its own merit. It doesn't need change or revision. It is still the power of God for salvation. Even in the apostolic times when, when, Paul, uh, when, when Paul had to warn them, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. New Hope Presbyterian Church is a church that is committed to preaching the full gospel of grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, lots of people don't like the blood of Christ, don't like repentance and the cross and faith and those matters, but they never have. And until the Holy Spirit changes hearts, they never will. It's a work of grace from start to finish. We can't manipulate someone into faith in Christ. It's foolishness. Charles Finney was notorious for trying to manipulate crowds to coming to faith in Christ using psychological methodologies to do that. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of unbelievers, calling them out of darkness into light. When did the unbeliever ever begin to like to, to be told that he needs a Savior, that he needs to think of himself as dependent, not self-sufficient, that he's not virtuous, that he's not good, that even his best works are filthy rags, Listen, I, I, I struggled that struggle personally. I really did believe that one day I could have enough good works to outweigh the bad works that had been going on in my life. That somehow I could merit eternal life because I do enough good stuff. It doesn't work. That's not what the gospel is. 
Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's not tickling ears. He's not talking about what people are comfortable with or what they want to hear or say. The Corinthians uh, wanted Paul to spiff up the gospel. And Paul says, nothing but Jesus and Him crucified. Far from sugarcoating his message and repackaging it, he presented it this way. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Your faith is not dependent on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Your faith is not dependent on how good David or I preach. It's on the power of God. It's not dependent on on your favorite uh, theologian. It's not dependent on your favorite uh, TV evangelist. It's not not, not dependent on anything but the power of God. Should Paul adopt the Judaizers' message? Absolutely not. When it comes to the non-essentials, Paul will go as far as possible to accommodate. But when it comes to the essentials of the gospel, there can be no compromise. I think we need to remember that the bad news is, is that our hearts are so much more sinful and wicked than we ever knew they were. And that the gospel of free grace is, is a gospel that is so good, that is so marvelous, that is so wonderful, that is unbelievable. And that the gospel of grace covers not only our sins in history, our sins in the past, but it covers the sins that you've yet to commit. That changes the way you live. It doesn't give you a license. It means that your life is spent praising God, giving back to God because he has been so gracious to you. Well, let's move on to the danger of gospel deflection. The last half of the passage here this morning, and I'm not going to take too terribly much longer, but in verses 8 to 10, he talks about the eternal consequences of, of adopting, of, of receiving, of believing the counterfeit gospel. He says, even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, uh, let him be accursed. Let's just stop with that for now. Paul's using pretty strong language here. When he actually uses the word accursed, let me take a second and, and open that word up for you. The word accursed... Um, is actually uh, the same word that uh, is used to uh, translate uh, the things that uh, happen in uh, um, Israel's life when they went into the promised land. In uh, Joshua chapter 7 in the Old Testament, um, they, the, the Hebrew people were told to put under the ban uh, everything uh, that uh, they, they came into the land and uh, was to be destroyed. Every, they, were, they were to destroy all the items of false worship and everything else. They were to be destroyed. They were under the ban. The word is actually means anathematized, okay? Um, let me give you a couple of other illustrations. In Acts 23, people are trying to kill the Apostle Paul. 
men have sworn that they will, they've taken an oath of self-destruction that they would not eat or drink until they killed Paul. They put themselves under the ban. They anathematized themselves. They called themselves accursed. That English word accursed is a good word, but I don't think it carries the freight with us that, it, that we need. I like the old word anathematized because it carries more gravitas. It, it means more to us than just that they're cursed. You know, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we just finished 1 Corinthians not long ago. Paul uses that word uh, accursed for eternal damnation. He says this, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be anathematized. Let him be accursed. Let him be under the ban. Let him be set apart for destruction, is what Paul says there. Paul's not issuing a mild reprimand saying, now, you really ought to not talk that way. Let them be damned eternally, is what he is saying. In verse 8, Paul applies that anathema, that eternal separation, that ban, being under the ban to himself, even though we, Paul and his uh, entourage, should preach to you a gospel different or contrary to that which we have preached, let us be accursed. Paul says, let me be accursed if I have compromised the word of God. That's how strongly he felt about it. It was a gospel that he received directly from Jesus Christ. It was a gospel that had changed his life on the Damascus Road. It was authoritative. And Paul had not tampered with it. And he had not held anything back. He had preached the whole counsel of God. Go on in the text. Paul urges, or, or Paul uses the uh, illustration of the angels to establish his argument here. He says, even though we, even though we, or if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. Where did that come from? How did Paul come up with the idea of an angel preaching a gospel that would be contrary? And you know, as I was studying this week, somebody I read, I should have, I should have made a note about who it was, pointed out, that maybe Paul was thinking about 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, I know you're going to know this passage right off the top of your head. 1 Kings chapter 13. In 1 Kings chapter 13, the prophet had gone up from Judah to prophesy to Jeroboam uh, at Bethel. And God had revealed to the prophet that he was to return by a different way. He wasn't to go back the same way he had come. And by no means was he to stay or to eat in the area. So 1 Kings 13. I've read 1 Kings 13. And I've always thought, hmm, curious. No, uh, you know, I've read it. But I don't think I've let it ever dwell into my heart. So anyway, this prophet is told by God. He's to come back a different way. And I thought, you know, all right. An old prophet from the northern kingdom who wanted fellowship went after this other prophet. And he invited this other prophet. And, and he wanted this other prophet to come back with him. And so in, in 1 Kings 13, verse 18, here's the word, here are the words. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house. God has spoken to the prophet. 
this other prophet comes in. He says, look, an angel told me that you should come back with me. First prophet should have known better. And that's what Paul's point is. Even if an angel were to declare another gospel, why did God slay? God, God, by the way, put him to death. Why did God slay him? Rather than the other prophet who lied, the first prophet was put to death. Let me be sure that you got that. Not the prophet that lied. Why did God slay him? He should have seen through the deception. An angel cannot change the message that's been infallibly received from God. And Paul's making that argument right here in our text. I think he was thinking about 1 Kings 13. I think Paul's Old Testament knowledge was so much better than mine, I can't even imagine what it would be like. Pretty cool. I was amazed at that. He also talks about uh, false teachers in verse 9. Paul Paul applies the principle of not compromising the gospel to false teachers. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching a gospel contrary to what we receive, let him be anathematized. Let him be under the ban. Let him be accursed. Paul says that it matters not who a man is. It doesn't matter what his pedigree is. It doesn't matter what seminary he went to or, or where his credentials came from. Uh, if, if whatever credentials he might claim, if his gospel differs from the gospel of being saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, treat him like a prophet who has come declaring that an angel told you to do something different. Let him be accursed. Look at verse 10. Paul enforces his commitment to the gospel there. He says, he speaks of his own motives. He says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? You see, the false teachers had been accusing Paul of of manipulating the gospel, of adjusting the gospel, so that when he was with the Jews, he preached one way and he taught one way, and when he was with the Gentiles, he taught another way. And Paul's saying, look, that is not at all what's going on here. In fact, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul says, there's no way. What I preach is what I preach to everyone. So I was thinking about the text. I was thinking about, okay, we need to have a high view of the gospel. We, we need to encourage others to take a high view of the gospel of grace. But what are the other, what are the applications? How do we make the applications of that? How do we, how do we bring this home to ourselves? What difference is this going to make? I was praying about that and thinking about that. And if God condemns the false preacher of a counterfeit gospel, I think the first application is he also condemns those who believe that counterfeit gospel. I think there are a lot of people who are in churches today who don't know the gospel of grace. And that breaks my heart. Counterfeit gospels being preached. Not to believe the gospel in its entirety with a clear presentation of the perfect work of Christ and its demands of repentance and faith and its response of obedience that flows out of justification by faith alone is actually to be cursed. Is actually to be an accursed 
be under the ban. That is a sad condition. That ought to strike fear in our hearts about what's being declared in pulpits all around the world today. I think another application of the text is that it's important to know right doctrine, to be well-grounded in the truths of the gospel, and, and that to depart from the true gospel for another one is to turn from God to a counterfeit. Just the truth of the matter, it can end up exposing your soul to eternal damnation. So what are, the, what are some of the modern counterfeits, by the way? What, what are some of the modern counterfeits that, that are around? I think you can divide the counterfeits into three big, broad categories, if you don't, if you, if you don't mind me making generalizations. The first, the first category is basically the liberal gospel that says that Christ is a good example and that we're uh, supposed to follow Christ's example and, and that our good works ought to be good and we ought to outweigh our bad works with our good work. That, that liberal gospel uh, kind of thing that we hear so often. Those who believe that kind of counterfeit gospel remain dead in their sin and trespasses. I think many would be shocked to realize how often people in conservative evangelical churches believe that way. I think, I think it would be shocking. I think it's tragic. Many wrongly think that in addition to trusting Christ, that, that they have to do something in order to be justified. The truth of the matter is, you can't add to the gospel. I think when we do things, we don't do it to be justified. We do it out of gratitude to God. We do it because we want to please our Savior. We want to serve Him. We want to do for Him, not because we're trying to merit something with Him. There's a second modern counterfeit, and I've had a recent encounter and discussion with someone else who... who kind of held this view. She called me on the phone and she was concerned because New Hope doesn't celebrate the sacrament every week and, and you know, that she needed the sacrament and, and that's how she felt cr- close to Christ. It, it, it is a sacramental gospel. Had a long, I've had several long conversations with this young lady. You see, the sacramental gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, the sacramental gospel of the Eastern Orthodox, of the Russian and the Greek Orthodox churches, where, where uh, the work of Christ, uh, to, the, to the work of Christ, those churches add things like penance and prayer and sacraments and the intercession of Mary and the saints and purgatory and the mass to, to atone for sin. Those are additions to the gospel. That is, a, that is another gospel. That is a different gospel. That is the gospel that Paul is preaching against. There's a Protestant perversion of the gospel that comes perilously close to sacramentalism, to the Roman Catholic. They teach that baptism unites us to Christ as long as we're covenantally faithfully and remain in, in Christ. Baptismal regeneration. That's another gospel. That is not the gospel of grace. It too is deadly. And then there's a third general category. And it's not as, I don't know, 
I don't think I don't think it's as soul damning as the others. Uh, how do you, how do you put how, how do you put shades on that? But it's the gospel that asserts human authority in coming to Christ. It's the gospel that, that says that the sinner is free to choose for or against God and, and may choose to apostatize, may choose to give up his faith after he has put faith in Christ. It's actually the gospel that is preached in Arminian churches. It is a dangerous, soul-damning category. Those are hard words, y'all. Those are words that, that, frankly, the last three or four days of this week, I've regretted that I needed to say. But because it's the Word of God, I can't step back from it. I, I want you to be well-grounded. I want you, more than anything else, to value the gospel of grace. I want you to ask yourself today, what gospel have I believed? What is the gospel? Faith is a free gift from God. It's not something that earns us favor. Perseverance is a grace Christ has purchased. It's not an act of my will by which I put myself under the gospel and keep myself there. What have you believed? Do you believe really and truly that you are saved only by grace through faith in Christ alone? That's our gospel. And that's what our world is dying to hear. Let's pray. It is so easy for us to want to add something to our salvation. It is so difficult to not try to merit the grace that we've received. It is so important for us to maintain the truth of the gospel. Would you help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to not compromise the gospel in any way, shape, or form? To remind ourselves daily that it is the gospel of grace that we have to go back to, to start our day with, to remind us that we are living in grace hour by hour, minute by minute. And that it's not by our merit. It's not by the things that we do or would add to our salvation. Father, thank you that you have completed our redemption. That is, that is accomplished and that is then sovereignly, graciously applied to us by the work of the Spirit. Would you help us to live in light of that gospel? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.